0: We have a continuation today of our Genesis series. Have you guys enjoyed Genesis so far? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Uh, We didn't write it, but uh, Moses wrote it. um, And so we get to study it together. And if you know us as a church, we love, especially in the summer, we go as close as we can verse by verse through a book of the Bible. So this summer, this is part four. Uh, but we will be in this for the rest of the summer until about Genesis, roughly chapter 23. If You know, there's 50 chapters in Genesis. So next summer, we'll pick back up with the rest of Genesis. But it's the beginning of everything. It's the story of God. I don't know it, it, about you, but I, I love Genesis. In fact, today, I just want to apologize in advance. Because we're going to geek out today a little bit, okay? Because we have to. It's one of the things I do love about going through Scripture verse by verse because it forces you to talk about things that really do help but might not be the topic of interest that you typically make when you're just doing topical sermons. So we do both. We're passionate about it. But it's a privilege to be able to preach through Genesis alongside some of our elders as well. I want to remind you how we started last week, looking at the beginning of the story and just thinking about how amazing the scripture is. Like we so take the scripture for granted or we have a world that's constantly coming against it that doesn't really understand. It's amazing what you can convince yourself to believe if you start with the premise of unbelief, right? It's called presuppositional truth. I start with a presupposition that something's not real, so then I tweak and make it not real. Coming though to the scripture humbly to say, how do I read this first of all? I read it literarily not necessarily just literally. I read it as if, what is it trying to tell me? What is it telling me about God? Was it telling me about the world? Was it telling me about evil? Last week we said, not everything in the scripture is prescriptive. In other words, not everything you read in scripture as you approach it is prescribing you to do that or prescribing that God is this way. A lot of time, it is just descriptive. It is describing events that took place that has a meta narrative, a much broader, bigger story or narrative in us for us to enter into this world humbly and listening. This is why Jesus will constantly say, He who has ears, let him hear. Yeah. He will say, You need to humble yourself and come like a child. This is one thing I loved about being able to go to Israel uh, the last couple of weeks. Bring my son and my daughter. This is for his senior trip before he goes off to college. And we are, this was not vacation, by the way. We are going to sites, opening our Bible and say, this is where Jesus was when he preached this. This is the mountain he was pointing to when he said, This mountain be cast to the sea. This is what was happening. This is the area that he rode the donkey on. This is where we were. We got to see it. And I'm telling you, it is hard. It's easy in America to go, Oh, that's just all ancient. primitive it is really hard when you're standing in the judean mountains overlooking with the exact site that the old testament refers to and go man this stuff's just made up because archaeologically they keep finding more and more to substantiate the scripture it is beautiful and so you get this 4d picture and it gives you so much more faith in the scripture while it's easy to have naysayers it's easy to have skeptics it's easy to deconstruct, it's hard to construct. It takes work and humility to construct. So it's, it was a beautiful trip to be able to do that and it just makes you appreciate scripture so much more. And I wanna to come to you continually with this passion that the word of God on your phone, tablet, in your, on your bookshelf is powerful. Is truth and speaks of a world and gives you a picture of a world that's far better than Marvel or Avengers or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or whatever world we come into and get lost into as we binge watch that season. The world of the Bible is beautiful, but it is strange. And as Mark Twain was quoted saying, truth is stranger than fiction. We're gonna dive into this strange world, but I wanna start like we did last week. Genesis one begins the whole story of the Bible. We're looking at the big picture, big meta-narrative, and you've got Genesis 1-1 that says this. In the beginning. Every epic tale starts with these words, in the beginning. And you're just starting, like, what's going to happen? What, what is going on? What are you trying to tell me in this story? It says, God created the heavens and the earth. But I love, if you look at, not the very last verse, but the last chapter, verse 5, it ends with this epic tale of, and they will reign forever and ever. This story doesn't even have an ending. It is infinite, it goes on and there is a reigning, there is a movement, there is a mission that has been and will continually be accomplished. This is the story we get to read about and approach and dive into. And it's supposed to be there to frame your life in how you view, how you pray, how you think, how you act, how you parent, how you treat your spouse, how you make friends, because once you have the framework then the spirit and the scripture starts to make sense on application of life. Let me say this. If you don't have the framework, oftentimes it feels irrelevant. It feels like, what's the point? I don't get the Bible because it's just a bunch of la la la. It's so interesting to dive into and see what scripture is trying to tell us. If I introduce you for the first time, you'd never heard a narrative and it started in the beginning, God, and it ended, they will reign forever. You, well, What happened? What's going on? This is how we approach scripture. And Genesis gives us a very interesting but strange view. Might be different for some of you if you are not very versed in scripture, but I wanna do my best to not nerd out too, too much. But I'm of the opinion... You actually can be pushed further intellectually, that I don't want to underestimate where you can go spiritually and intellectually, um, and then underestimate maturity. Oftentimes, this is what preachers do, what churches do. We overestimate how mature you are and underestimate how much you can actually pay attention and understand. I am the opposite, and I want to help you frame some things. I want to talk about, last week we mentioned the fall, Genesis 3, and then we went into some genealogies and showed you how even in the genealogies, the mystery and beauty of God is in there. Every word is perfectly established in form and has great depths and layers like Shrek. There's layers to it that God has so much truth. So you approach it one year and because of all the synapses in your brain and everything that you've been through in life and everything you've heard, like you connect something to scripture and then the next year you've grown and you've created new synapses in your brain and you have new connections and new ideas and you approach the same scripture, you go, oh, I never saw that before. And there's a humble way that the scripture continues to live and act and open up to you. Do, do, Do you think I like the Bible? Okay. It's amazing. Genesis 3 starts with this fall. God created not the world perfect, but the world good. The Hebrew word Tov was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then man and woman were deceived by what is called a serpent. Now, oftentimes it's easy. Like I love apologetics, so I, I listen to a lot of different people that love to denounce scripture or, or try, to, try to act like everything's archaic, and everybody was just primitive back then. And let me tell you, they were so much more brilliant than us so many times. When you go to Caesarea and you see a city that was built with toilets, sewage, uh, uh, stadiums, and you're just overlooking the sea, and they did it in 12 years. Listen, it's gonna take us 12 years to finish 610 over here. <laughs> I mean, these people were brilliant. They're not dumb. They're not archaic. In some ways, they're way smarter and more advanced than us. And of course, in a lot of ways with our technology, we are too. There is levels of progression, but do not think these people were dumb. We see this fall that came and it wasn't just a serpent, it wasn't just a snake, but it's symbolism, it's allegory. Actually, the word serpent has the same roots as the word seraphim which the Bible says are floating around God like chariot angels, cherubim and seraphim are around the throne. They are throne guardian angels. They are spiritual beings. And you're supposed to know this because they would have known this world at the time. And the idea of serpent is the same thing. This was a spiritual being that deceived Adam and Eve. This is metaphor, this is understanding, this is poetic language of what was going on and how the fall came. But let me say this to you. There was more than one fall that Genesis shows us. It shows us the continual depravity and different falls. Because here's the deal. When we approach the Bible, there's more than just God, the character, and then Adam and Eve, and then humans. We see angels, we see spirits, We see lowercase g gods. There are multiple categories that we're going to get into. And so we see different levels of failure or falls. The first one was the deception of Adam and Eve to not trust this loving God who gave them an opportunity to choose because love allows choice. If I forced you to love me and forced you into my house, that is not love. Okay, so God allows this and you have the tree of life and you have the tree, not of death, but of knowledge of good and evil. And they chose to say, I want to create my own good and evil. I want to trust my own morality and I'm not going to trust God. So they fell. But then there's another fall, which we're going to hone in on today. And this is in Genesis 6, where it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took As their wives, any they chose. And then next week, we're going to see the Tower of Babel. And we see a third fall in Genesis. Let's look at Genesis 6 together. And I'm going to read about 13 verses. Here we go. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, which was the original call of God, right? Be fruitful, multiply. Multiply and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, we're going to go sci-fi here because this gets interesting, but this is crucial to understanding of the big narrative of the story. There's different theological understandings of what sons of God are. Some believe these were actually the seed or the children of Seth. Remember, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And then Adam and Eve create a new son named Seth. And out of that line, some people believe the sons of God were Seth's lineage. Some believe that the sons of God were a name for the kings of the time that would oppress people. Bad kings that had a lot of power. The problem with both of those, and I'm gonna be a little bit more dognamic, dog, dog the problem with both of those is they don't fit the meta-narrative meta of the story as well as what I'm gonna share with you, what I believe in several theologians, not just me. So more, more witnesses believe what the sons of God are. We define certain words in scripture with scripture, not just with what we have an idea of. So in other scriptures like Job 1.6, 2, Job 2.1, Job eight seven, Psalm 89.6, Psalm 82.6, Deuteronomy 32.8. Well, I don't have a whole seminar today to go through all these, but other scriptures, you see the same word, sons of God. And it's always referring to in those instances, spiritual beings, spirits. We could call them lowercase gods. Little gods, and that's the word for them, Elohim, sons of Elohim, ha, ah, Elohim. And it is little gods. Now, this becomes troublesome because we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't believe in multiple gods, and you know, I don't believe in Thor, and you know, we, don't, we don't go into that realm. But hold on. Do you believe in angels? If you're a Christian, you probably believe in angels, Every Christmas, we, you know, churches dress up their kids, and they're wearing a little angel costume, and they're like, right, talking to the shepherds. You believe in this. We read the New Testament, Jesus is casting out demons, and he's being tempted by Satan and taken up to a temple. You believe in the spiritual world. We just don't talk about it very much, and I wonder if The church in the West specifically is very anemic because we don't have a holistic understanding of scripture. We overly humanize it and materialize it. Materialism is just the belief of matter and energy right here, what I can see. And yet we know today COVID ran rampant. You never saw it. We know there's so many things going on. As Jesus would say, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He comes, but you don't see him. We know there's an unseen realm out there, and yet we don't put that into the gospel message very often. We don't put that into the biblical narrative of what's going on. And yet today I'm going to show you, it explains a lot when you actually say, I do believe that here and here. Maybe I should believe it right now. Not to weird you out, not to make everything a demon or everything spiritual, but let me tell you today, I just, I read an article a few weeks ago that today there are more people that proclaim themselves to be witches in the United States than Presbyterians. The world believes in spiritual matters. Go to Barnes and Nobles. Just the first row, you'll see tarot cards. You'll see spirituality. You'll see... All sorts of astrology. Why? Because people understand and people are longing for something so much more than what's just right in front of me. There's something There's something in the depths of who I am that knows there is more than just this life and living and dying and matter and energy. So much more happening. And I love that the Bible is not afraid and you don't have to be afraid of your Bible. So here's the deal. If the sons of God are lowercase gods or spiritual beings in that realm. This paints an interesting picture. The sons of God saw, this is the same word that is used, Eve saw that the apple was good and she took it. It's like the narrative is trying to teach us what happens when sin comes. See, take, see, take. God looks, offers, gives. They took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now here's some more sci-fi. The Nephilim, you know the Nephilim. I mean, you saw one yesterday. Um, the, the, the word here is Giants. I was joking with Tim that he's a Nephilim because he's 6'8", uh, earlier. Like, dude, you're a giant, bro. I remember uh, we had a family, I was at a church in uh, San Antonio, and we had a very wealthy family. They gave us second row seats to the Spurs when David Robinson was playing. And that's the first time I was like, okay, giants are real, this is nuts. <laughs> it's different on TV, right? You're just like, oh my gosh. This is the word for giants, but, Here's how it explains it, and we don't want to run past this or be afraid of the Bible. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into, it's talking about sex, sorry, children, the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the Nephilim, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. It's really interesting. If you read other religious r- religious material, like uh, uh, different uh, understandings of Mesopotamian culture and history, you see pictures that they call these giants, these Nephilim, and they were like warrior kings. They became, and almost like we get Greek mythology. Like, but what's beautiful about this is The scripture doesn't just say all that stuff, all those other religions, they're all dumb. They're all wrong. It doesn't say that. Every truth has a hint of truth. Every false thing has a hint of truth. And it says, you're partly right, but these aren't Herculean great figures that are good, that have good intent. They came from an evil place from spiritual beings that left their boundaries and did horrible things, literally fell, and created a new seed that wasn't from God creating man out of the dust, but out of these half-divine, half-man people. Now, I know if you're reading, you're like, no, this is weird. Hold on. Why is that important? Verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every, listen to this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like right now, you have evil thoughts, you might even have evil intentions, but not continually. There's something sustaining you, holding you back. In fact, the Bible says the church is salt and light. We're here to preserve Goodness, So people don't fall into all their evils. But he said at this time, everything, even the intent was evil, was selfish, was about gain, was about myself. Imagine a world like that if you can. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. We could get into a lot of philosophy about this, but there's no time. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I think what this shows the most is God's free will, literally, that he gave in love. Look at this verse eight, but Noah, which means comforter found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's see about Noah, verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. This word blameless is the Hebrew word for tamim, which actually a good definition for, I've told you we're gonna geek out here, is free of blemish. This, this makes you, if you know the Bible, this makes you think of a spotless land. This one person, everyone else is evil. This one person, and not his best friend, but his family line, only his kids, continued without blemish. Not perfect, but he wasn't tainted. He wasn't distorted. He hadn't succumbed to the evil of the world. Only one person and noah had three sons. Oh, I'm sorry. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, "I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them, with the earth. Let's pray, have a good Independence Day. (laughs) This is harsh. These are the kind of scriptures people don't like to approach because you have a lot of anti-church, anti-Bible, atheist, agnostic movements that look at this and describe it to God. Look, see, God is this megalomaniac, genocidal How can you serve a God who would just destroy everybody? And I want to posit to you today that God is good, and there's a reason. And this was the only way. Now we said, in the narrative of the Bible, there are more than just man and woman and God. In fact, the scripture is replete talking about God being the supreme, the creator, the ultimate, the highest. This is why we give him the highest praise. This is why when he comes on the scene to the children of Israel, they have heard of lesser gods, other gods, gods of water and the Nile and the sun god. And they had all of these gods that he came and conquered for them in Egypt, to take them as his own, to save them, not because of their great works, but because he designated them as his people, save them, love on them, but they had the wrong idea of what God and the whole worldview of God was like. They thought all the gods were equal, and if I sacrifice to this one, he will give me offspring to have a child so I can continue my lineage or raise my farm because I need multiple kids to have a farm, agriculture. I'm going to pray to the God to give me rain or sun in order to raise my crops. And they believed in all of these entities and these gods. And so when Moses comes on the scene and says, you are children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this God, this is a different God. This is the God of all gods. They don't have full capacity to understand that because they've been under and oppressed by other ideas and religion and gods. God has to save them, take them out. But this isn't, again, multiple gods in the sense of they're all equal. There is what we call, and what scripture talks about, a divine council. it is a a God within the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that love, that have joy, that have peace that have so much they want other creation to experience their joy and their love their giving so they create spiritual beings and then they create a physical being and these different levels of God's counsel it would be kind of like if you were starting a business you would need a staff this is God's staff so when it says sons of God in Deuteronomy, which we're going to look at next week, princess of, you have this category of spiritual beings. That's the best way to look at it. And then under that, you have angels and demons, which angel is just a descriptive term of a spirit being as a messenger. So every time you see angels, it's not, it's not a name of a person or a type of person. It's simply just the work of the person. They are a messenger of God. And we've messed up so much with all of our, uh, our ideas. This is just reading the scripture for what it is. Why is this important? And where did I come up with this? <laughs> the Bible. Let's look at the New Testament, Jude. There is a worldview the apostles and disciples used to help substantiate some of these things that I don't think we have as much today. Jude, verse five says this. Now, I want to remind you, Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, the messengers, the spiritual beings who did not stay within their position of authority, other translations said within their boundaries, but left their proper dwelling He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. He's not talking about fallen angels later in Revelation. He's talking about Genesis 6. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The Bible says every word is established by two or three witnesses. Here's the apostle Peter 2 Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels, spiritual beings, messengers of God, when they sinned, you have to go, okay, wait, when did they sin? When did they fall? But cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, Noah, over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, all that to say, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. If you don't understand Genesis 6, you're gonna really struggle. What are you talking about, Peter? Peter. What what mindset, what worldview? Where are you getting these ideas? Genesis 6, in essence, says this. God created the heavens and the earth. God created spiritual beings to enjoy the life and love and trust of God. God created man. One of those spiritual beings deceived man, took over, corrupted the earth with sin and death, in Genesis 3, God had a plan to restore it with a Savior. You get to Genesis 6, and it says those same spiritual beings left their boundaries and had sex with the daughters of men and created a new seed, a new DNA. We know so much now about mutations in our DNA within our genes that cause all sorts of sickness or problems. This is, in essence, saying the same thing. This seed passed down now a new mutation of people down into the world to where all that was left was one man, Noah, who had not been corrupted by this evil seed, and his seed was not corrupted. The only one, unblemished, that was clean, that that wasn't tainted. So God's not just trying to kill everybody. He's going, there's only one left. I've preserved one righteous man in order to destroy the works of the enemy and what he tried to do in infiltrating men and women and causing evil and death and subservient people, not to God, but to other spiritual beings. Now, this is deep, but it helps you understand kind of like, why would God just kill everybody? He had to. He had to start over with someone else because there was only one unblemished. First John three eight says, "Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil." That word's not just describing a person. The devil is the word slanderer. He's of the slanderer, for the slanderer has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared, I love this, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now let's think about this. You've got the fall of man. You've got the fall of heavenly beings corrupting the very DNA of man and God's creation, which was a brilliant plan by the enemy to take over. God saves one man in just his lineage, takes him through the flood and says, I'm recreating through just this one person that is pure. This is the very picture of what Jesus did. Do you know Jesus' first sermon, he comes on the scene and he's in the synagogue, which is like a church service. And all of a sudden there's like a demon that comes out of a guy, starts talking. You're the son of God, leave, our time's not here yet. And if you don't know that there's more going on in the Bible, you're gonna read that and go, what the heck is happening? And I love Jesus. Cast demons out. He heals people. He comes, he would touch an unclean leopard, and they're clean and healed. He came as the unblemished, perfect, only one that could do it. But his was so much greater than what Noah was gonna do. It's so much greater than God's even initial idea with adam paul says this in romans 5 therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men thank you jesus for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's jesus obedience the many will be made righteous now the law came in to increase the trespass but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin resigned in death or reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does that mean? These words, Christ is Adam's antidote antidote and antitype for what Adam handed down the one man Christ surmounted and surpassed. Listen, Jesus comes on the scene and he doesn't preach. Everybody just be really nice. Just love one another. He does say that, but you know, his first sermon that we have on record is this, as he opens the scroll. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor And to tell everybody, be really, really nice to one another. Okay, if you don't know the Bible, that's not what it says. To preach good news to the poor. The Spirit of God is on me. And to set the captives free. Jesus had a mission and some kind of militant idea that people are like puppets and captive to something going on in an unseen realm. This is why later Paul will say, listen, your battle is not against flesh and blood. This is why we don't always like to deal with all the polemics in society because I'm not going to make you, I'm not going to demonize you because I idolize my political idea or my agenda or my bias and I'm going to demonize you because I can make you the evil one because it makes me look really good and my party really good and my side really good as if my battle is against the human right there we had a guy call our church recently and need our church for a memorial because he lost his son who suffered PTSD and on in the ambulance ride on the way to the hospital jumped out of the ambulance and got crushed by a truck I don't know this guy but his son is going to be memorialized in Houston and while this is happening I'm watching the news and everybody fighting about everything and stand up for what you believe and go for it I'm not telling you not to but look beyond what's really going on as well because as I'm on the phone with this hurting dad I'm not asking him "Uh, bro are you Republican or Democrat? bro what do you believe about abortion? right now I'm talking to a human that is hurting that is in pain I don't care about those peripherals, they do matter to an extent. But first things first, there is more going on in our world. Don't be deceived. And Jesus did not come to make nice men nicer, He came to create new people to change lives to rebuke the enemy to destroy the works of the devil and if we don't have this picture you will easily do what paul tells us not to do don't fight against flesh and blood yeah. the weapon of our warfare is not carnal but mighty in god for the pulling down a stronghold there is more going on don't be deceived yeah. Yeah. jesus says come to set the captives free if you're in here and you go i'm not a captive you might have not met the real Jesus yet. We all at one point are captive to sin, captive to our own lust, captive to the culture, captive to our own ways, captive to our eye, captive to our ideas of good and evil. Right. Our own morality and what we think is right, Jesus comes in and says, "I've come to set them free. They need freedom. They need true independence. True freedom. And He rebukes the enemy. And he overcomes the enemy who hangs him on a cross as genesis 3 says he will bite your heel but you will crush his head and then he raises up a church not of just nice people but of militant people but not militant with guns and swords and fighting flesh but militant in prayer and intercession and walking in love and forgiving one another and creating peace because that's the jesus that we serve and only jesus could make this happen one of my favorite quotes in a book you won't be surprised if you know me as we close is how c.s lewis (laughs) this might be one of my favorite of all time that he says because it encapsulates so beautifully and let me tell you some some of us in here are like oh okay you're way too prideful and intellectual to really go here but I promise you, you're not smarter than C.S. Lewis. That's why I'm quoting him. And look what he had to say. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war but it does not think this is a war between independent powers it thinks it is a civil war a rebellion and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel enemy occupied territory that is what this world is Christianity is the story, listen to this, of how the rightful king has landed. Come on. Nobody else likes this. As the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Love your neighbor. Bless those who curse you. When you go to church, you are really listening into the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day, this is in 1940s, to reintroduce our old friend, the devil, hooves, horns, and all? I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you'll like it when you do is another question. Enemy occupied territory. We are the rebels. But our rebellion is not like the world. We act very differently. Like our father. Like Christ who came to destroy the works of the enemy.